Good evening. Glad you guys could make it tonight. We are continuing in Romans. And today we are going to be in Romans chapter 9. And really 9 through 11 is a section, but we cannot cover that section. Um, And it's going to do all we can to kind of get through 9. I don't want to go on too long, so we'll see how far we get as we go through this. But a couple of things that we need to just keep in mind as we're dealing with this chapter, we want to remember the righteousness of God, and what the righteousness of God was, was his covenant faithfulness. Remember early on in the book of Romans where it says the righteousness of God, we are careful to explain that it's not about our righteousness or the righteousness that God gives us, but it's about God's righteousness. And what does that mean when we say the righteousness of God? Does he always do what's right? Well, it was he did what was right according to his word, according to what he was promising. And so this is the term that we're going to keep in mind is the covenant faithfulness. Because we're going to find that the covenant faithfulness is something that is very much a part, not only of this book, but of the New Testament overall. Most of the time when you look at commentaries and how they divide the book of Romans, they will have an introduction, which is pretty typical of Paul. This one is a little bit more extensive. And and then they'll want to break it apart to this... um, Sin, the area of sin where all have sinned. And then they talk about justification through faith. And then they talked about sanctification. And then they'll go to chapter 12 and talk about ethics. But chapters 9 through 11 in a lot of commentaries seem to be an aside. Paul is just talking about something. It's a little appendix. It's One commentator even said that it's like a sermon that Paul had that he kind of threw in there. I don't know how you would know something like that, right? How do you know? Yeah, I just happen to have another sermon. Here it is. But really, I I think as we've been talking about it, we're going to see that these chapters are connected very much to what Paul has been talking about and building on. That it's not an aside, that it really is central to what he is trying to deal with. Remember, he is talking about how God has used the Jewish people, but he's used them in a very specific way. And dressing the Jewish people, he wanted them to understand that God has opened the door to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles, and he wanted the Gentiles to know that you need this historic connection to the Jewish people, that they are to be connected, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And it's to the Jew first because that's who God made that covenant with, was Abraham, and it's now also with the Gentiles. And we talked about that passage, to the Jew first and in the same way to the Gentile. It's not like we're secondary citizens because we're Gentiles, but the Jews are primary citizens. There is neither Jew nor Greek. God is not a person showing favoritism. And that's important to keep in mind because we're going to really capture that in chapter 11. Last week at the end of chapter 8, it it ended on this high note that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the end of Romans 8, he's really come back to the same point that he had made in chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. What if there is this new covenant people? people who are not limited by race, people to whom God has been at work in through the Spirit and he has written his law on their hearts, even though they're not not circumcised. And so this kind of theme that he's been talking about, these who are the true people of God, we see that exclaimed at the end of chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because we are those who are circumcised in our hearts. A person is not a person who is Jew, one outwardly. 
nor is a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. A circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from men, but from God. That's chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And so we're going to see that those verses lead right into what he's talking about still. What he's doing is talking about it, and then he gives a little bit of a hint about it. You know, well, should we say that, you know, God is unjust, or can we continue in sin that God or ju- that uh Grace may abound, God forbid, but he doesn't expound on it. Well, now he's expounding on it more. He's going to. And so we see then that there's the question, okay, if this new people of God is established, has God failed? Is God unrighteous? What does it mean by unrighteous? Did he keep his covenant with Abraham? Is he unfaithful to that covenant? That's what we mean by God unrighteous. How can God hold these Jewish people responsible to their keeping of the law if now he is abandoning that for this new people. And so we see these questions take place in chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage is there of being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? He asked that question and he said, oh, a lot in every way. And then he didn't expound on it. He's going to expound on it. And so we see this building up to get to a place where he's really having to deal with the Jewish people, who they are, and what is their purpose in the plan of God. We saw chapter 7, the end of chapter 7. He really spoke a lot as if he was a Jew, having to deal with his position. And then in chapter 8, we move to where he is now in Christ. We saw the frustration of chapter 7, and we saw the fulfillment and now the relief, the freedom that we have in Christ in chapter 8. How there was the law of sin and death, and that has been fulfilled for the law of life and peace. And that's what he said in chapter 8, verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so we see the contrast of a law of sin and death and the law that is of the Spirit of life. And so although the people of God are not defined by their ethnicity, and the works of the law. And remember, the works of the law are primarily those things that identify them as Jewish, circumcision, the Sabbath, the purity laws, food laws, and those things. Here, the same set of questions are addressed in chapter 9. We see these same things coming up, but more intensely. Before, the answers were brief, not real explanatory, but now he's going to go in depth into these areas to explain them. In chapter 3, he talked about the righteousness of God, that covenant faithfulness of God, that it was revealed through Israel's ethnic history. It is not revealed through Israel's ethnic history, but that the Messiah has been true and is the faithful Israelite. Abraham's promises have all come true in Christ. And so he's mentioned that before but he's going to explain it a little bit more. The same thing in chapter 7 all the way to chapter 8. Verse 11, God has in Christ dealt with the problem of Israel according to the flesh and specifically Israel according to the flesh that was defined by the law. Remember, we saw that the law illuminated sin. It made it evident. It it brought it about. It increased it, he says. We talked about why did the law make sin increase? Because it highlighted it. It helped everyone to see. And that's something that he's continuing on. Chapter 9, Paul is back at that same point theologically and even, I would say, emotionally. Because all the privilege and entitlements of Israel are given to the people who are in Christ. And again, what most commentaries seem to miss from chapter 4 to chapter 8 is that Paul is taking one after another all the privileges of privileges of Israel and saying these all now belong to the Messiah and through the Messiah they belong to the Messiah's worldwide family. He is not saying 
that God is giving Israel's identity now to the Gentiles. We are not given the position of Israel. The position of Israel was fulfilled in Jesus. It is that we are given the true, we are now given or made the true people of Israel. We are seen in Christ. Those who are in Christ share in the inheritance in those Jewish privileges. And that's why he ends those who are, he predestined, he called those who he called, he justified those who he justified, he glorified. Those are all the privileges of Israel that are now ours in Christ. And so this is where we take up. This is where we jump into the story. And chapter 9 through 10 is telling the covenant story of Israel from its beginning through its ending. And I want to kind of go through this to give us an idea of what is on the horizon that Paul is talking about, and then we'll break it down a little bit more. But he starts off with the call of Abraham in chapter 9, verse 7. Then quickly he goes through Isaac and Jacob, and each time showing that there is a distinction being made between one brother and another. Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau. Then in verse 14, we find that we're in Exodus and we're talking about Moses squaring off with Pharaoh. And at the end of Exodus with the golden calf, when he says, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, that's not referring to Pharaoh. That's referring to the children of Israel. We'll get into that more. But that's at the end of Exodus, chapter 33. We move quickly to the sins of Israel that led to exile and to the prophetic passages that deal with exile and restoration, which is the end of chapter 9, where he quotes Hosea and he quotes Isaiah. There's a lot of those quotes there that deal with God, what God is doing to judge his people, and who he will deal with, and who he will deal with the judgment and make his way through that to the other side. How is he going to get past the judgment that needs to come on those people? And then it's no surprise in chapter 10, Verses 1 through 4, we have a summing up of this history and the work of the Messiah. Chapter 10, verse 6, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, which is about covenant renewal. It's about God renewing this covenant, renewing after the exile, about God's mercy after judgment. And Paul is telling the long covenant story of Israel. Chapter 10 moves on to say that the Gentiles are now going to come into this extraordinary being welcomed into this covenant and into the family of God. And so we see in chapters 9 and 10, really, Israel's covenant story with God from the very beginning to the bringing in of the Gentiles. And by the end of chapter 10, Paul has told the whole story in a strange and almost cryptic way, but one that resonates with the main way that Jewish theology was understood. And that was through story. Remember when we went through Genesis, we talked about how this isn't a theological book, but theology is all throughout the book. And we see that story was the main way that the Jewish people of Paul's time would deal with theology through the story. We saw that with Stephen in chapter 7. When he was being stoned to death, he started discussing and revealing those things. First, Israel's constant rejection of their leaders, how God would send the prophets and they would reject them and they would kill them. And second, that the temple was always a temporary thing, that God was not going to dwell in the temple, but instead has brought the Messiah, Christ. And so this isn't something new, the way he's talking about it. And you see, this is where I think the problem comes in, is a lot of people read the book of Romans and we read it from our mindset and we make the conclusions that he's talking directly to us. And then we lose the historical content of how the Jewish mind would hear Paul, see these passages, and connect to them in a very distinct and decisive way. 
And if we fail to do that, then we come up with some just abstract understandings of what Paul is saying. And he's not saying those things at all, as I hopefully think we'll understand. And so chapter 11 then comes after this idea. If Paul is dealing with this something new in his own way of dealing with this Jewish story in a Jewish fashion, telling the story of Abraham through Exodus, through the exile, through the Messiah, to the covenant renewal, and then the gathering of the Gentile people. If that's happening in chapter 9 through 10, chapter 11 is the big so. What are we going to do about Israel according to the flesh? And he's summing up those things and he's leading us to that way and up to that point. And so let's read verses 1 through 5 of Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And so Paul starts off with his grief, and he says theirs, and he's referring to Israel. He's talking about his kindred people. Theirs is exactly the adoption. The adoption is what? That was Israel's privilege. He talks about adoption in chapter 8 twice. He mentions it. It was their privilege. It's now in Christ that who belongs, anyone who is in Christ is now a son of God. It is a privilege that is now given to theirs. And so he talks about what is theirs, their adoption. He talks about their divine glory. What is the divine glory? Remember we talked about the divine glory, the divine glory, the glory was given to Adam to be, have dominion over the earth. The glory which was Adam's, which was then imparted to Israel because who was supposed to deliver us from Adam's curse? Abraham, the children of Israel, was then to bring about this. And so we see that then was to being Abraham, they were called to bring the healing agents for the world, those he called, okay? He justified and then he glorified that divine glory, the glory which was Adam's, which was Israel's, which is Christ's and his people. The covenants, he talks about the covenants, and we saw that in chapter 4 was based completely on Genesis 15. It was about the covenant. That was the chapter. Well, those were to the Jewish people according to the flesh. That belonged to them. And so we see that he is dealing with these specific people, and that's why Romans 7 makes so much sense. Why are they so frustrated? Because these things belong to them, but they don't have the inheritance. They're still in exile. I, I'm still in this place. Even though I am doing what I know I should do, I find this law within me. That is my members, my flesh. So I have an understanding of God, but with my flesh, I'm still in this exile. I'm still lost. Who can deliver me? Well, we have to get there. We have to get to Christ. But these things right now are all identifying the nation of Israel and their condition and their situation. We see the temple worship that was theirs. That idea of temple worship is something that we saw in Romans chapter 3. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He is the Lord. And that was given to them. We see that God's promises to them, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Messiah, those are all promises that belong to the Jewish people. So you find out what's true about Israel. You want to find out what's true about Israel? Here 
are their privileges and these belong now to the Messiah and his people. If you want to know what belongs to them, what are those privileges? Here they are. And now they are fulfilled in the Messiah and belong to the Messiah or belong to his people. The irony is that the Messiah is the crowning glory. He's the privilege. But who is this Messiah? Well, we know it's Jesus, of course, but he's the Jewish Messiah, according to the flesh. But the flesh never has the last word with Paul. It's never where it ends. It always ends on the spirit. In Pauline theology, he has to bring it to this area of the spirit. And he has to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, the Jewish Messiah. He has to come in the likeness of the Jewish people and the likeness of Israel. And he is born the pain, the guilt, the grief, the flesh in the flesh and is dealt with on the cross all these things and now is made alive and a life-giving spirit. And so all the privileges of the Jewish people have been put in Christ and are now part of those who belong to Christ. But it was the Jewish Messiah. All your privileges were in him. And now if you are not in him, those privileges don't belong to you. And so he is brokenhearted. I could wish for my people's sake that I myself would be accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Remember that because that's going to come into play a little bit later on as well. See, though he came in the likeness of Jewish flesh, he is God over all, which he concludes with who is God over all, forever praised. So he is the Messiah of the Jewish people, but he is God over all, Jews and Gentiles, praised forever. And so Paul is now cracking the door open. He is God over all, not over just the Jewish people, but over the Gentiles as well. And he's helping them to understand the position they are in now because of Jesus. And as he's taking us here into this place, we see that it's Israel's tragedy and it's her glory that she is the people of the Messiah, but she is also the people of the Messiah according to the flesh. That word flesh is an important word throughout this epistle. It's the word sarx in the Greek, S-A-R-X. And it has to do with their ethnicity. It has to do with their heritage. It has to do with their identity in the flesh. And so, yeah, the Messiah was born to you through your lineage, but you are the people of the Messiah according to the flesh. The problem here is not simply that the Jews have rejected Jesus. The problem is the covenant election theology. Israel has become a problem that is beyond the problem. Israel has become the problem. Why? It's If Israel is going to be the means of salvation for the world, then you have to ask who's going to save Israel. See, you're saying you're the ones who God is going to use to deliver the world, but who's going to deliver you when you are in this condition? And so they need to first recognize their condition before they can get out of it. And the second problem is about, about Israel is that it hasn't fully been dealt with, and it has really to deal with the problem about God himself. He's addressed it shortly, but if God called Abraham, or is called Abraham's seed, and none of them are in the promise, did God fail? See, he's got to address these things. And so this is where he's leading us here, because these promises were to Israel's, heritage to the seed of Abraham, but we see that it is 
God who is over all praise that needs to be recognized. And so these chapters are digging into this area of the righteousness of God. And I want you to think of covenant faithfulness when you think of righteousness of God. We've got to dig into this. Is God faithful? And so there's this total concept of covenant faithfulness of God includes questions like, has God made promises that he hasn't fulfilled? Has God done the opposite of what he said he would do? Made promises, but now he can't fulfill them? Has the word of God fallen to the ground? In other words, has God's word not been accomplished? Has it died? Is it left undone? And why would God deal with us in this way? Is God behaving unjustly in some manner? Is God doing what is right in every way? And so that's why we're going to see as this goes on. In chapter 9, verse 6, we ask the question, it is not as though God's word had failed. He has to address that. Has God's word failed? Has it fallen to the ground? Has it come short of what it was meant to do? Verse 14, is God unjust? Verse 19, why does God then blame us? Is God blaming the Jews? Why would he be blaming them? These are all righteousness of God questions. These are all addressing the righteousness of God, which Paul has spoken about throughout this book. But now he wants to dive into it deeper. And so chapters 9 through 11 are dealing with the multiple levels of Israel's failure. We see Israel's failure at the giving of the law, We see Israel's failure in the exile. We see Israel's failure when Jesus came and preached to her. We see Israel's failure to respond to Paul's gospel. We see this taking place throughout these chapters, Israel's failure to respond to the covenant that God has established. And the second is the problem, again, theologically with God and did he fail. And I believe that what Paul is showing here by implication is that God has always had one plan and it was always shaped like the cross. God, from the very beginning when he called Abraham, had the cross in mind. A lot of people wonder then, why would God choose this people? And maybe you've wondered this. Why would God call these people, give them a law only to see them fail And then have Jesus come into the picture and say, well, you couldn't do it. I knew you couldn't do it. I thought I'd show you you couldn't do it, but I knew you couldn't do it. Now I'll give you a real way, right? Like that's kind of mean. Why wouldn't you just give us the real way? Why would you make us go through all this? Did you do that intentionally? Did you have one way for the Jewish people that was to fail? And then you had the way of Christ that was to be successful? Is God unjust? See, we're dealing with those same topics in this passage of Scripture. We're asking those questions. But I believe that God has always had the plan of the cross. It has to do with Israel as the people of the Messiah according to the flesh. And that they have acted out in a global scale the suffering, pain, grief, and death which is the means of the world's redemption. In other words, God was using Israel to be an example for the world of what was needed. And then it was easily seen in the person of Jesus. Israel had to exemplify that in their own identity, but it was always to point to the cross. Remember, it was through the law that sin increased. Why did sin increase? Because it showed Israel in their sinful condition. It showed Israel in their desperate position. And they were in exile and they were dead, as it were, in their covenant establishment with God. They were having to be resurrected again, as Ezekiel talked about. And this was all plans that God had to use the nation of Israel to be the place where sin was seen, understood, and then dealt with. And so they have a purpose, and it was always to lead 
I believe, to the cross. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So let's get into it, okay? So we can get through it. In verse 6, verses 6 6 through 13, it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He talked about that earlier, remember? Not because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose purpose in election might might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And so God's justice, God's promises, and God's word in relationship specifically to Abraham and his seed. He's talking about those things. And we see in the second part of verse 6, he says that not all the descendants from Israel are Israel. Not all who are descended are of the promise. What's he saying here? What's he trying to get through? Well, he tells us, nor because are they all his descendants, his seed, okay? Are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, not Ishmael, right? So not everyone who was born out to Abraham automatically gets into this covenant family. They don't all, just because they're born of Abraham, belong to the promise. God was selective at the beginning. And he said that with Isaac, and he goes on and he says that also, or he said that with Abraham and his son Isaac, and he says it with Isaac and his son Jacob. Okay, God's word has not failed concerning his promise to Abraham's descendants because God always told the patriarchs that this was what he was doing. It wasn't unclear. It was to your seed, but it was through Sarah that you would have a son. He was very specific in pointing that out. The young, older will serve the younger. He blessed Jacob, not Esau. And so God never said to Abraham, every single one of your descendants will be my true people. He never said to Isaac, all your children will be my true people. You see, the story of Israel, as told by many of the Jewish people in Paul's day, was that from Abraham to Isaac, they would exclude Ishmael, they would exclude Esau. Automatically, they just did it. And then when they came to Jacob, they were all-inclusive, the 12 tribes. Okay, but the first two, they were selective, and then they include everyone else. But Paul is saying, no, the selectivity continued. God always had certain people that he was going to establish this covenant through. It wasn't all of you. And so God is dealing with these things in these passages. And when he says, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? That's a quote from Malachi. And he's talking about a position of the heart in these people and God's dealing with them in that position. See, before they were good or bad, God said, the older is going to serve the younger. What was he doing? He was selecting one for a purpose. Not everyone was selected. And he's telling them this on purpose so that they'll have an understanding of where they fit into God's plan. And he continues this train of thought in verse 14. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up 
for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So he says, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart in order that he might make on behalf of his people this great act of redeeming judgment to be proclaimed to all the earth, it says in verse 17. God was going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he could deliver this people. What is Paul intending for the hearers, his readers to hear? What is he wanting them to understand? You see, we read this and we think of it as arbitrary. God likes some people and he doesn't like other people. Or that's how it's been portrayed. God chooses some, but he doesn't choose others, at least in a Calvinistic frame of thought. And who are you to question God? We'll get into that a little bit later. But who, what is he intending his readers to hear? What he's doing is intending that Israel in his own day, that they are like Pharaoh. And the people who are hardened will magnify and redeem the actions of God for the whole world. You see, he quotes Exodus 33. For when he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's not about Pharaoh. That is about Israel. That takes place right after the golden calf incident, right? In chapter 32, where God said that he was going to blot out Israel and make Moses a great nation and use him instead. And then what does Moses do? Moses pleads in response and he says, forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of thy book that you have written. He says that in chapter 33, verse 32. Isn't that very similar to what Paul said? For I could wish myself cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. He's putting himself in the same place as Moses. Moses said that when God was going to bring judgment on who? On Pharaoh? No, on the nation of Israel. And God says, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Paul clearly has this in mind as he's stating that Israel has no claim on God. Every day after that golden calf incident was a gift of grace. They should have been judged. There's just showing, again, their failure to respond to God correctly. God could have blotted them out, but he didn't. It's not just an arbitrary choice between two people. It's an amazing act of grace over a people who are totally sinful. So what's he saying in these verses? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll harden who I will harden. Is it to show that God can send some to hell and he can send some to heaven? No, that's not his point at all. His point is he could have sent you, but he didn't. He was merciful. That he actually showed an amazing amount of grace and you are living in the mercy of God right now. You don't have a claim to God you should have been judged, but you weren't. And like Pharaoh, that could have been you. And we know from the story of Pharaoh that it said Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we see even with the individual Pharaoh, God responded in order to accomplish what he wanted, but he didn't violate Pharaoh's will. He used his will to accomplish what he wanted. And so we see here that he's dealing very specifically with the people of Israel. When he's using these scriptures, they would know when he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. They knew exactly when that took place. Oh, that was the big incident. That is when we blew it. That's when God pulled us out, delivered us, and we betrayed him. And the law, the first act of it was to condemn us. But God showed mercy. And so it shows, again, not an arbitrary incidence with two people, but it's showing how God is dealing with the nation of Israel. He builds on that even further. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, 
then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Keep in mind, who do you think he's talking about here? It's not just, oh yeah, you know, Joe down the street. Sorry, Joe. Some, some other guy down the street. You know, He's not just talking about any random person. Who do you think he's talking about here? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah previous said, unless the Lord had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. And so, again, it starts out with this accusation. One of you will say, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist him? This has been, again, read classically as a statement about predestination, that God chooses some, rejects others, which again begs the question, why would that be here? Why is he talking about this at this point in this book? Why is he bringing about this now? He's talking about it for a very specific reason. What Paul is talking about here really has little to do with the doctrine of election or predestination as been brought out by a lot of those in the Reformed theology. When Paul says, who are you human being who are you, a human being, than the potter and the clay example? When he's giving this contrast in verse 21, we need to understand that the language is in its true scriptural setting what he's talking about. Because when Paul says, who are you, Isaiah and Jeremiah, you will find a number of passages about potter and clay and that the potter has the right to do different things with the clay or if it's become a bad piece of clay, he has the right to unmake it and to make it into a new pot of clay. The Hebrew mind, when he would go to this, who do you as a pot, the clay have the right to say this to the potter? They would immediately think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these instances where this is taking place. And so when Paul is talking about this, this is never an abstract, an abstract thing. As you find in Isaiah and Jeremiah, you see these passages where God is doing something new out of that same piece of clay. This is never just something, a doctrine that God is playing games with human beings, but that God has the right over Israel, his covenant people, to send her into exile and to return her from exile and to renew the covenant that will be unlike anything she ever imagined. He did that explaining this through them. Here's who you were. Here's where you fail. You were in exile. Here's how God brought Christ into the picture and is bringing the Gentiles. There is the renewal. He is dealing specifically with the nation of Israel and their condition here. And if we don't see that, we'll think it's just about us individuals. It's never about the individual. Remember we talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we looked at one of our core values. We have this tendency of saying you and thinking it's me. And God sees the collective and he's dealing with Israel. And so what is God doing? What is he trying to do through all of this? Why is he doing this? Remember chapter 7, 13, to eight, God called Israel to be the means of saving the world. How could Israel save the world? By Israel being the place 
where the sin of the world would be concentrated, illuminated, where sin would increase so that he could then deal with it for all the world. And just like a potter making a vessel for a particular and radical and uncomfortable use, God has used Israel for a very specific purpose, that this nation would be used to help everyone see sin being dealt with through Jesus Christ. And it would happen even through their exile, and it would happen through those things that took place in their lives. But God was using that to do something completely new. And so who are you to say, God, you can't use us in this way. You can't use our nation in this way. Well, why can't I? I have already shown you more mercy. And now I want to use you to bring that mercy to the rest of the world. See, if we lose the context of what Romans is trying to do, we get into these asides where it means less than what it's supposed to mean. This never means that God wants to send some people to hell or chooses to send some people to hell. What this is really talking about is God has chosen the nation of Israel so that through them he could work and manifest the promises that he has made to deliver and bless the whole world. It's to show more mercy, not less. It's to be more merciful, not less merciful. God is going to take this broken people and he's going to reform them and renew this covenant so that the world can be blessed through them. Just like what happened with you and Pharaoh, I'm going to use you and bless the whole world. And that's the context of what he's talking about. Israel is the vessel of wrath, not for her own sake, but so that the Messiah would come as her representative and take upon himself the role of being the vessel of God's wrath so that the sin of Israel and the sin of the world would be punished and condemned in the flesh. And so Israel is what is the vessel of wrath. What is the whole, all the people know Israel according to the flesh. And that's a real important term. He's going to build that and deal with it finally in chapter 11. But we need to understand what he's saying here about that. And it's important that we recognize that. Because if we don't, then we're going to have some struggles in these areas trying to figure out what exactly Paul is trying to deal with here. There's an illustration that I heard, and it's a diff- it's not really a, a great one, but I don't know a better one, so I'm going to give you this one. Suppose there's a bomb squad, and their job is to find a bomb that's in the middle of the city, and they're to remove the bomb and take it out somewhere, and then they're to detonate the bomb off somewhere where they can let it blow up and everyone can be saved. Okay? What happens if that bomb squad, everyone praises them, oh, the bomb squad, they're such amazing people, they delivered us from that bomb, they took it out there. But what if the bomb squad said, yeah, our job is to take the bomb out of the city, but what if they took it out of the city, but they didn't want to get rid of the bomb because then they would lose their recognition? No, the bomb is what makes everyone think that we're special because look at, here's the bomb we're saving you all from. You see, Israel was chosen by God to be the bomb squad. To take that bomb, sin, and to take it out of the world. But you see, the place where it was meant to be left was on a hill outside of Jerusalem called Calvary. That's where it was to be detonated. But what would happen if they would not want to leave it there into that hands, if they wanted to maintain, no, we are the ones who are going to deal with it. They're meant to leave it there and get out of the way because it's being dealt with by the Messiah. What happens if they want to take that bomb? No, we're going to deal with sin. We're going to deal with sin. You can't deal with sin. It's going to blow up in your face. They were meant to be that tool of God and then to leave it at the cross and get out of the way. And to see their destiny of the people of God given over to this one who is their representative, some of them couldn't do that. 
Because the destiny to be the elect people of God, it's a terrible destiny. It means being cast away so that the world could be healed. And so now they're finding themselves in that place. They're having to deal with this identity and they can't. They're unable to deal with it. The result of what God has done in Israel is ultimately in Christ and it's about bringing this covenant renewal. I'm going to break what was there, I'm going to explode it, and I'm going to make something new out of it. But it has to be dealt with. Israel, I'm going to use you to make it known. I'm going to use you to get it to the hill. Now you need to get out of the way. And So they were the objects of God's wrath. How? They were meant to be a part of this process so that God could deal with the sin. Does that mean everyone in Israel? No. It's again giving the idea of Israel according to the flesh. Those who are holding on to their ethnicity that this is our bomb. We're going to hold on to our bomb. Don't you dare take our bomb away. I know it sounds silly. That's why the analogy doesn't work that well. But again, if you got a better one, let me know. The result of what God has done in Israel is ultimately done and found in Christ. And five or 25 through 29, Paul quotes Hosea and Isaiah and points these passages out in ways of always returning from exile. Exile dominated the first century Jewish theology. Exile was what it was about. We're in exile, exile, exile. And so these passages of returning from exile, again, in their minds, they would understand what it means. The New Testament is all about exile and restoration. That dominates New Testament theology. And these come together to say that God has been extremely gracious to his people and he has brought back from exile a remnant. And he always has. These people, well, who's the remnant? It's those who are in Christ. We talked about that last week. Those who he called, he predestined. When were you called? You were called in Christ. When were you predestined? You were predestined in Christ. When were you justified? Justified in Christ. You see, no one has a problem with being justified in Christ. Why do you have a problem with being called or predestined or glorified? That's all in Christ. And the remnant is going to be those who are in Christ. And that's what he's referring to here. And so, verse 30 to 33, he has a conclusion here. It says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. The one who believes in him. So why would he say, well, I chose some, but the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Would he, is he trying to confuse people? No, he's very clear in what he's trying to say here. And so Israel is pursuing the law of covenant membership, but they didn't attain their goal or the law of life. And that's what chapter seven is all about. That frustration we see is the state of the Jewish people apart from Christ. They can't get out of their exile. They can't get out of their sin. They are stuck. And then verse 32, the real fulfillment of Torah, Paul is saying, has always been held out to her. It's not a matter of their ethnic specificity specificity or Sabbath or circumcision or dietary laws. It's a matter of hearing and believing. Israel stumbled over that stumbling stone. The people of God, the people of Israel. And the works that he talks about, it was never by works. It was never by keeping the Sabbath. It was never by circumcision. It was never by your dietary laws. It was never by those things. Those things were only showing you where it was going to lead you. That was not your salvation. That's why they would say things like the blood of bulls and goats can never cleanse a person from sin. Well, then why do we do it? 
it's pointing to something. God is going to break this clay and he's going to make it into something else. And that's what he's intending to do. The real fulfillment is in the hearing and believing. Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone. What is the stumbling stone? Is it Christ or is it the law? It seems to be both. It seems to be both. It seems to be Christ and it seems to be that law. How can Christ and the law then be together if Christ is fulfilling the law? Well, that's what he says in chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the culmination, the end, the goal, the fulfillment of the law. See, when God gave Israel the Torah, that was how sin was drawn together, was illuminated, was made known, was increased, as you were, in Israel. When God sent Jesus to Israel, that was how Israel's sin would grow to its fullest height. As Paul and Stephen said, they rejected God's salvation. It was to make it known. And then the bomb went off. And God dealt with sin. And God put the pieces that were broken together. And now they had to see what God had done because they can't choose how God is going to redeem, how God is going to work. And you can't hold on to the bomb and say, no, we are the people of the bomb. We have the law. We are the people of the law. God says, get out of the way. I've dealt with it. And he's dealt with it through Christ. And so this chapter, far from being one that's dealing with individuals and whether God wants to choose one person or not is God's dealing with the nation of Israel and how God has had a plan for them all along to use them to bring about the awareness of the sin, to bring about the death of the Messiah, and then to reform and renew all things. That's what he's talking about, which is different than maybe some of the things that you may have heard or thought of about this passage, because it ends this, the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, belief always starts with God, but we all have the potential. And so that's how he's dealing with this chapter. Any questions? about this. Does it make sense seeing how he's talking about the idea of hardening and mercy on whom I'll have mercy, the potter and the clay? Do you see a contextual understanding of this? Maybe a little bit more? Okay. I think that's really important. I know I've read this passage and think, oh my gosh, what is he saying? You know, you're going to just cast some people off. And, well, I hope he won't. I guess he's nice and he won't, but who am I to say? And then why would he say that? Why would that be there? See, it's here for a reason. It's here because he's dealing with this nation of Israel and their identity problem. They want to hold on to that bomb. We have the law. We are God's people. It's through us. It's through us. You need to let it go. God has used you for this purpose let the purpose be fulfilled. That's what he's dealing with. Sure, no questions? I hope I made it clear, because, man, it's trying to wade through this. I'm like, oh, yeah. That's the best I can make it clear in those things. Sure, no questions? You guys are all staring at me dumbfounded, like, what was that? If there's no questions, we'll eat cookies. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me stop and just say this. Paul wrote this. What do we get out of it? You know, now having an understanding of the context and how it's to be interpreted, what are we then to get from this? And I think one of the things that we can get from this is that God is willing to do what it takes to save the world. God will use whoever he needs to to be a person who can bring about his glory to reach his redemptive glory in the lives of the people around him. 
that that's his motive, that's his intention. That it's not God is being restrictive to some, that God is doing what he can to open the door to all. And so unlike it being selective, it's being very much opening the doors instead. And, you know, there's passages like in verse 22, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. Again, endured with patience objects of his wrath. And we get hung up on prepared for destruction. What does that mean? Well, God was going to destroy this whole thing to build about something else. And he's happy to do that if it's going to open the door and save the world because that was his intention. So that's kind of where we would go from there. If I was going to just do like a Sunday morning talk on this, it wouldn't be all about all this stuff. It would be to show how God is so reaching, how God is so long-suffering, how from the beginning when they should have had judgment, God showed mercy. And that's what we see. God showing mercy, God showing mercy, God using what is broken, remaking it and making something good out of it. And so that would be the point I would conclude from this chapter. Well, I guess, what do you mean by save the world? And so can God bypass our will? If God bypassed our freedom and our will, it would violate his character, I believe, of being love. You know, as much as we'd like to say, you know, I want to give everyone freedom, but I'm going to give them, I'm going to make sure that they don't have the freedom to choose what's wrong. We all keep going on sinning, don't we? I mean, we all, yeah, fortunately God has mercy on us all there. But to believe in God or to believe in Christ, um, it's a choice that a person has to make. You know, we again, we've talked about this a few times. God is always revealing who he is. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world or what you know. There are people who never heard of Christ and God is revealing himself to them. We're all held accountable for the revelation that we receive. We're also, God takes into account what revelation we do receive. You know, what if a person hears about Jesus, but he hears about Jesus from a person who is... uh, using Christ to manipulate, you know, and get money or power, because that happens. Are they held accountable for that person's misrepresentation of God? I'm not going to go there. God can deal with that, okay? God is righteous. God is just. He'll deal with everyone according to the revelation that they receive. And so we're all responsible for that revelation that we see. But the clearer the revelation of Christ the clearer the decision should be to follow after him because that is the representation of who God is. And so if someone hears about Christ and they hear about it clearly and they reject it, well, then what they're really rejecting is God in some form or another. Now, if they're rejecting again, well, you know, I don't, these Christians, they're always, you know, condemning or whatever. Well, then maybe they're hearing something that isn't being said or isn't representative truthfully of Christ. That's There's a million questions I have. Man, get me started on that path. I'll be here forever because um, there's a lot of questions. But I think, you know, ultimately, God is doing what he can to reach the world. He has done what he could to help people be aware of sin and his love for them and dealing with the sin. Now what do you do? How do you deal with it? And that's everyone's responsible for that, you know. Do you think it hurts God any more that they don't receive him as opposed to a Gentile? We're going to get there, chapter 11. Because we have this idea of God's chosen people. What does that mean? Maybe we just talked about it. Maybe we just addressed what it means to be God's chosen people. Are there tiers of God's chosen people, where well, you're first class citizen in heaven, you're second class. If you're Jew, you get a little bit more bragging rights. You're a little bit more favored by God. 
What does that mean? And so we'll talk about that in the weeks to come, but not today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this time has been helpful to understand this passage of Scripture, Lord, and how you are using story to bring about an understanding and how this theology would have been well understood at Paul's time, especially for the Jews who would be hearing these examples and putting the pieces together. When they hear Pharaoh and they recognize you delivered them and then they hear that you actually had mercy on them as well after the golden calf and they see time and time again you talking about bringing this renewal, restoration back from exile And as they hear these things, they start to put the theology of what is being taught here through these stories. And may we recognize that in these stories, what you are doing is showing that you are reaching, that you are merciful, that you have broken and put back together for the purpose of renewal to fulfill what you have promised. You didn't say that every one of Abraham's children would be part of this inheritance. You were specific. There would be some. It would be the younger. It wouldn't be the older. It would be the one of promise, not the one of the flesh. And through these stories, you were telling another story. You were revealing your theology and truth. And so as we continue to look at these things, help our minds to be able to reach out and understand the frame of thought that was taking place at the time so that we can get a a grasp, even if it's just a gist of what you were saying and and trying to speak to the people then and to us. And I pray that these truths would be clear and importantly understood and applied to our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.